Well, we're in a series right now called Dying to Live. You know, Jesus calls us to die to our sins, to do that in order to live the life that he's called us to live. But in order to die to our sins, we first of all have to have sorrow for our sins. And that sorrow is what we started talking about last week when we began talking about the word repent. And the word repent simply means seeing sin for exactly what it is, calling a spade a spade. It really means we getting a glimpse of our sins, seeing them exactly like God sees them. Instead of evading or denying or minimizing or justifying our sins, we're called to repent. And you know, repentance is one of the most painful things in the entire world because we have to come face-to-face with ourselves. We have to come face-to-face with our guilt exactly as it is. And we also have to, in addition to the guilt, when we repent, we have to come face-to-face with the full damage that our sin has done not only to ourselves, but the damage our sin has done to other people. And then on top of it, we have to come face-to-face with the damage that our sin has done to a sinless God. You know, if Jesus were to walk into the room this morning and stand in front of us, first of all, that would be pretty amazing, right? (laughs) But if Jesus were to walk here physically into this room this morning and stand up front, how many of you would even think the thought of coming up and slapping him across the face? Would anyone do that? We'd probably all fall on our faces. But you know, every time we sin, it's like walking up to Jesus and just slapping him across the face. It's slapping the face of God. Because God is a sinless God. The Bible says he's like a white-hot consuming fire. He is so utterly pure. And so to sin, any sin, big, small, whatever you want to call it, is a slap in the face of God. And you know what? Every one of us in, ro- every one of us in, ro- in this room have slapped the face of God many, many a time. So repentance is a word for us all. And uh, the, the scripture speaks about godly sorrow. Paul said in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, he says, for the kind of sorrow... God wants us to experience, leads us away from sin. It leads us to salvation. Now, I want to make a distinction here between guilt and shame. Guilt is something that points to our bad deeds, our bad actions. And guilt is something that tries to push us toward God and His grace and His mercy. So guilt is a good thing, though it's a horrible, horrible thing to feel. It's really a good thing. It's what's going to help us move toward God. But shame, on the other hand, is very, very destructive because shame doesn't attack, it doesn't attack, doesn't point to the act of sin. Shame says, you are a worthless, absolute, no good person. You're of no value to God. Give up and die. 
Shame leads us to self-destruction and death. So there's a big distinction between the two. God wants to free us from our shame. He wants to redeem our lives. So the first, so the first topic we're looking at this morning, we're going to look at the word sin. And we're going to look at the most shocking sin, probably the most shocking sin in the entire Bible. It's the one that caught everybody totally off guard that no one would ever have expected to take place because it shocked an entire nation. And I'm referring to, if you haven't guessed it already, the sin of David, King David. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And this is the David whose godly heart God, captured God's attention even when he was a young boy. And so when God was searching for a king, the next king of Israel, he sent Samuel over to Jesse's family because Jesse had a whole string of sons. And he had all of Jesse's sons except one who happened to be absent that day. That was David. He had all those sons stand up in front of Samuel, to be an, one of them to be anointed the king. And you know, all of his sons, they all looked like the rock. They sort of looked like a mixture of Matt Damon and Brad Pitt. I mean, these guys, any one of them looked like they, could have, they would have really been a great king of Israel. But the Lord said, not a one of them. And then he said to Samuel, don't you have another boy? Yeah, he was out taking care of the sheep. He's just a kid. And then he brought David in. And here's, here's the thing. The scripture says God doesn't look on the outside appearance. God looks on the heart. And what he saw in David, even when he was a boy, he saw a heart for God. David was a godly guy from, from his boyhood up. And then this is also the David who demonstrated how very close a teenager can be to God. How even a teenager can set the example for an entire nation of what it means to serve God. Because the giant Goliath with the Philistine army stood up against the army of Israel. And the army of Israel was paralyzed with fear until David showed up to bring lunch to his soldier brothers. And David says, he sees the giant out there with his threats, and he says, who is this, who is this Philistine? That he can stand up and defy the armies of the living God. So David takes his sling, and he goes out, and he takes, he takes Goliath out. And then this is also the David that was so filled with the Spirit of God that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write a good part of the songbook of the Bible, the book of the Psalms. And, there, and, and it's right at the center of the Bible. And there's, the book of Psalms is all about what it means to have intimacy with God. And David wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. And then he says he leads me in the paths of his righteousness and his purity. And that's what David's heart was all about. And then from a young boy on, and especially after he became king, this is what was said about David among all the people of Israel. I think even the angels had this opinion of David. He was a man after God's own heart. But sometime 
in his 40s, is what scholars tell us, his mid-40s. David was out on his rooftop one evening, and he saw a woman bathing. And this man, after God's own heart, with all of his godly history and his spiritual depth behind him, he did not do what he himself had taught others to do. He should have turned his eyes away immediately. He should have ran off of that rooftop. But instead, he pushed aside the voice of the Holy Spirit, warning him on the inside. He pushed it all aside, and lust was conceived in David's heart. And it was so powerful that it overcame and distorted his thinking. David threw his whole value system off the roof that night. He threw his value system to the wind. And his actions became like that of a totally different person. He was not the man he had been all of his life. So there follows a whole level of irrationality in David's thinking. And it sort of unfolds like this. He ordered that Bathsheba be brought to him. That very night they had sex. He committed adultery. Now she was married to a soldier named Uriah who at this very time was out putting his life on the line in a fierce battle with the Ammonites on David's behalf. She became pregnant. And so David tries to cover it up. He sent for Uriah to come home, take a little leave from the, from the war front, anticipating, obviously, that Uriah would go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah was too loyal of a soldier. And he reasoned, how can I possibly, when all my fellow soldiers are out there, they might die tonight, they're on the front, how can I go home and sleep with my wife? It would, that would not be right. So Uriah, wouldn't, he didn't do that. So the next day, David said, well, hey, spend some time with me. So David got him drunk, thinking for sure he's going to go home and sleep with his wife tonight. But again, Uriah said, I, I can't do that. It wouldn't be honorable. It wouldn't be right. Well, my, it wouldn't be right. And so David, sort of out of options, he, he wrote a little note to Joab, his, his commander, on the front. And he took the note and sealed it, and he gave it to Uriah and said, Uriah, uh, head back, you know, I'm going to put you back out at the front. Take this note. When you get there, give it to Joab. So Joab gets the note, and the note says something like this, Joab, I want you to take Uriah, and I want you to expose him to the very most dangerous part of the battle, a place where he will surely be killed. And that's exactly what happened. And so David succeeded, it looks like anyway, in covering up his sin. And then David went on for a season of time to live a lie. Now, can you imagine during that time he was living his lie? Can you imagine how his conscience must be, the battle that had to be going on with him? He was shutting God out for the first time in his life. I bet he couldn't even pray. 
I'll bet he couldn't go to the temple and worship. He'd written psalms about when he was out in the wilderness being chased by Saul. He'd written psalms about, oh, how I long to go into the temple. As the, as the deer pants for water, my soul pants for God. Not now, because David had, was living a contradiction. He didn't compose any more psalms during that time, I'll bet you, because he was using all of his energy to cover up his sin. There is an irrationality about the power of sin that is shocking and turns a person into something else. And that was David until one day, a day that was the most miserable and yet the most important of all the days in his life, finally came. Because there was a prophet named Nathan, and God revealed to Nathan exactly what David had done. Now, David was a very artistic guy. He liked stories and he liked parables. He liked poetry. So God gave a story to Nathan and and sent him to David to tell the story. And I'm just going to read the story for you. Here it is. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan Nathan the prophet to David to tell this story. There were two men in a certain town... One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from the man's cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it, and prepared it for his guest. Now, when David heard that, his response, verse number five, was this. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Now, I think we come to the most, perhaps the most climactic, dramatic moment in the entire Bible in the next line. Because Nathan the prophet, and it took a lot of guts for Nathan to do this, kings could lop your head off. But Nathan looked straight into the eyes and face of David, and he said, David, you're the man. You're the one with your power of position and all your riches. You're the one who robbed this poor man of the wife that he... He hugged and loved and and drew to his heart. Now, David was stunned. But you know what? Nathan hit the nail on the head. And so unfolding from this, we have the greatest, probably the greatest story in the Bible of of how God sets a person free from their sin. Let's take a look at it. Nathan not only told the story to David that day and then walked out. He didn't walk out because there was more to say to David. He spends most of chapter 12 spelling out for David in detail the damage of his sin, the consequences of his sin, and the way his, the pain and sorrow his sin caused to many other people. Why did did Nathan do that? 
I mean, it only increased the pain and the guilt that David was feeling. Why would Nathan do that? I think it's for this reason. Because true repentance, the only path to forgiveness for our sins, is through facing flat out the depth and the damage of our sins and its consequences. And that's what it means to see our sin like God sees our sin. To grieve over our sin like God grieves over our sin. In other words, it's taking that cup of guilt and not drinking, taking a little sip out of it. It's not taking the cup of guilt and drinking half of it. But we have to drink the whole cup of our guilt if we're ever going to be set free from a sin, to grieve over it like God does. And you know what? It's, it, I'm glad to be able to say that David did that. And this was the day that David came away from his cover-up and his lie. This is David's response to Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. It says, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then at a time that was not too much later, maybe a few days, a few weeks, I don't know. But David wrote two more psalms about his repentance experience. And I believe we can learn an awful lot this morning as we just walk through these two psalms. They're beautiful examples of what it means to repent from the depths of your being, from the depths of your heart. But just before we do that, I want us to take a stop here because we've been sort of focusing on David's sin. And it was a big one. It was a huge, it was a damaging sin. But I'd like us to stop and take a little look at ourselves too. Because the scripture says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and have fall short of the glory of God. When it says the glory of God, it's talking about God's splendor. It's talking about his perfection. All of us have sinned and we've all fallen short of the perfection of God. You know, sin is packaged in two ways. First of all, there's the sin like David's, which is just a flat-out moral collapse. It's just it's just turning around and, and, and doing a flat-out uh, act of, that, falls, that is morally wrong, morally short, morally, it just goes south morally. That's one way of sinning. And in our human way of looking at those, there's the big ones and the little ones. I'm not sure that God sees it that way, but we do. We see it that way. But there's another kind of sin that the Scripture deals with. Uh, those are our bad deeds sins. But the Bible also talks about a certain kind of good deeds sins that we have to repent for. So we have to repent for our, good, our bad deeds and our good deeds. Okay, well, explain that second one a little bit. Okay. Uh, when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, he was talking about good deeds because that's what they were all about. And so when the Pharisees, Jesus, and yet Jesus, when Nicodemus came to see him, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he called Nicodemus to be born again. He called Nicodemus to face his life, to repent and be freed of his sins. 
there's this false opinion we have, isn't it? It's the most pervasive false opinion about how we find acceptance with God. And that is that we find acceptance with God by our good deeds, our own self-righteousness, which is totally untrue because the Scripture says we've, what we, the standard we've fallen short of is God's perfection. And so no matter how many good deeds any of us in this room try to do, we have all still have some bad deeds in our lives. We've all still fallen short. We're never in our own ability going to measure up to the perfection of God. So we're, we're, we have a, we're separated from God by our sins. And the whole point of Jesus coming into the world and taking all of our sins and going to that cross and dying for them was because we need his perfection. We need his sinlessness. He took our sins so that we could be set free from ours. Uh, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But, so uh, the point I want to make, as we walk through these prayers of repentance, it's, it's a prayer that God calls us all to pray right alongside of King David. Psalm 51, for the choir director. This is, a, this is the caption that's put on this psalm. A psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's the title of this psalm. And here's how it goes. David is praying, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sin. Mercy is undeserved favor. Mercy is undeserved forgiveness. You know, David... His sin was so deep and so great and so hurtful to so many, he probably was thinking, I don't deserve to be forgiven by God. I don't deserve that. The stain of my sin is not only deep in my heart, but it is spread out through the fibers, like fibers in a carpet, a stain goes, it spreads out and affects other people. The stain's too deep. We have that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a, what's that word? Wretch. You know, some songwriters have tried to use a different word than that. <laughs> That's a little bit too demeaning. I looked up what the word wretch means today. Uh, I never really looked at the definition of that. A wretch is a despicable, contemptible person. That's probably what David felt like, a despicable, contemptible person. And yet amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a despicable, contemptible person like me. That's how the song goes. And then we sing that song, just as I am without one plea. I have no argument. I, can't, I have no case to present to God. None. But that thy blood was shed for me. That's this gospel that we, as a church, that we live by and all of us have our life by. It's how we die to our sins. And then he goes on and is, he says, blot out the stain. And then he says in verse 2, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. God has a soap 
that can scrub the deepest stain away. He does. Now, verses 3 through 6, I think this is where David is just recognizing the depths of his, his transgression because he says this, for I recognize, he's praying, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned, God. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. So I think David is just saying there, he's looking inside and seeing how deep his sin goes. In fact, it isn't just his actions. He says here, it goes down to my very nature. I was born in sin. And all of us come into this world with a nature that is infected with sin. It's turned away from God. And we come to God and we acknowledge the depth of, our, the, depth of the stain of sin in our lives. Then we come to one of the, then, uh, well, okay, let me, let me go on this way to, to, to bring this to our attention. Uh, verses 7 to 17, I'm going to read through this quickly, but just listen to his prayer. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. There's David praying, forgiving him for having Uriah put to death. O God who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. And what did, what did God do? Well, David wrote another psalm, Psalm 32, and this is, what, this is what God did for him. Oh, the joy, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose, whose record the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long. He's talking here about what it was when he was living that lie. He, he was miserable. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. David couldn't philosophize his sin away. He couldn't try to redefine it away. He couldn't get rid of it at all. It was there. Finally, he says in verse 5, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. I don't know if you've seen those uh, pictures in, uh, of gazelles when they run along the, you know, the plains in Africa, and how those gazelles, they just sort of jump and jump and jump. Well, that's the picture I get when I think of... Uh, what happens when a person's heart, when, when a person is forgiven of their sins, when they've confessed their sins to God, there's a joy of being forgiven and of guilt being, of being set free from guilt that makes a person want to run and leap like a gazelle. And I think that's exactly how David felt when God freed him and, and redeemed him. Now, there's a question here. 
Does God's forgiveness mean that the sinner just gets off easy? Does God's forgiveness remove the consequences set in motion by our sin? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that the consequences consequences are there. But there is grace. There is grace that's going to come into play in the future of that person's life. And I want, to, I want to jump from David for a moment to the Apostle Paul as an example of this. You know, the greatest preacher of, of repentance and forgiveness and grace in the history of the world was the Apostle Paul. But Paul had done some very damaging things before he came to repentance. And one of the most damaging, he held the coats and he was in the cheering section and he perhaps even had a hand in authorizing Those who killed the very first Christian martyr in history. And of course, I'm referring to Stephen, Acts chapter 7. And that, you know, that went on Paul's record. I mean, that was a fact. It stayed there. He couldn't, Paul could not go back and undo that damage of taking an innocent life. And then the scripture doesn't say anything about if Stephen was married, and he probably was, Stephen was married and he had children and, or loved ones and family and friends. They were deeply hurt. There were consequences to Paul's actions here. And then down at the end of his life, when Paul's writing 2 Timothy, and he's going, to be, he's going to be going to be with the Lord soon, what does Paul still refer to himself as? He still calls himself the chief of sinners. And when Paul used that phrase, who do you think he might have been thinking about, among others? He's probably thinking about that day when he had a hand, at least, in the stoning of Stephen and all the damage and consequences that flowed out from that. And then, you know, he went on this raving maniac, angry rampage of arresting and throwing in prison all kinds of other people that were following this Jesus cult until finally God's grace met up with, with Paul. And he came to forgiveness. And so the damage that we have done in our sins, there will be regrets for that, for sure. But here's the thing. Some people let that keep them from ever being able to receive God's forgiveness. Because they feel like What I have done is way beyond the pale. It could never be forgiven. It's it's too it's just too damaging. God, it can't happen. But you know, that's a choice. We only have two choices when it comes to what we're going to do with our sin. We can repent and receive God's forgiveness, or we can remain in our sins which means that we're probably going to continue hurting other people more and more. Or we can come to repentance and receive God's forgiveness and grace, allow him to begin transforming and healing our hearts, and then we can become an instrument, a person who begins to spread that grace and that message of grace and forgiveness around to others that feel like they're caught forever in their sins as well. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. 
And that's what David did. And it's also what John Newton did, that guy that wrote that song, Amazing Grace. And he put the word wretch in there because that's exactly the kind of, that's how he thought about himself after he, you know, did all the evil he did on the slave ship that he was part of. And that's what every man or woman who has ever come to Jesus has done, left a life of damaging others in order to begin to tell others who are wrapped up in all the denial systems of their sins, to to show them that there is a way out. And there's only one way. And that's through the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, which he demonstrated on the cross. And so I want to close this morning by letting the final part of David's prayer in Psalm 32 Let that be our conclusion here this morning. And this is what David prayed. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, so that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. I think David is saying there that there is a window of opportunity we all have to repent of our sins. God gives us that window of opportunity, but there is a day coming when if we do not receive his forgiveness for our sins, we're going to stand and face God's judgment. And that's going to be a very horrible, horrible day. Because on the day of God's judgment, if we have not taken advantage of the remedy for our sins through the forgiveness of his son, Jesus Christ, if we haven't taken that remedy, then on that day, God is going to say something like this. He's going to say to to you or to me, Depart from me. Depart from me. I, I, I never knew you. Those are tough words. And with those words, a person that hasn't received his forgiveness is going to walk off into an eternity separated from God and separated from life and an and eternity of, of, of total regret and the loss of all their humanity. Horrible pain. That's what the Scripture is. The Scripture teaches us about hell. And we don't talk about hell too much. Hell was not created for human beings, the Bible says. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, his his demons. That's what it was created for. But the sad fact is that, that God in his word says that human beings will also populate hell along with the devil and his demons unless they repent of their sins. Jesus... Jesus, when he was up in the region of Galilee, he said it two times to a group of people. He said, unless you repent, you will perish in your sins. Unless you repent. So repentance is a really important thing. And we only have a window of opportunity for that. But we have a future if we do repent. And that's what David prays in verse 7. He says, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. And then he says, don't be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Don't, in this, when this message of repentance is shared, don't be like a stubborn mule to your own destruction. Many sorrows come to the wicked but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord, who place their faith in Him. 
So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him, shout for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. And that's what the Lord wants to do. He wants us to come to repentance so we can, he can begin to purify our hearts. So if you're here today and you're searching for God and you have never before confessed your sins, come to a place of repenting of your sins before God. If you've never done that, it's a really important thing to do. And I want to encourage you this morning where you sit right now in your heart to say, Lord, I'm not hiding any of my sins from you. I ask you to forgive me. Look into my heart. Father, I repent to you with all the sincerity of my being. Forgive me of my sins. And the Lord will do that. He'll do that right now. He'll do that this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians, any of us Christians in here who are hiding some sin in our life, like David was hiding his sin, whatever that sin might be, confess that sin, repent of that sin so that you can be set free. If it's an addiction that's just got to control, then get the help that's necessary. Have other people stand with you as you live with that confessing, repenting spirit. And the Lord's promise is that if you get people standing with you, you get help, you get counsel, whatever that is, the Lord, his plan for you is to set you free. And you can taste of his forgiveness and his grace today. You don't have to live with the condemnation of that sin in your life or, or bury it in shame. You can be set free. Bring it out of the secret into the light. Confess it to a trusted friend as well as conf- confess it to the Lord. But let this be the day you say, I'm done with that sin in my life. I'm not going to hide it anymore and be set free from it. I can't think of a better time to do that than in, in a service where we're going to have communion together. Because the whole point of Jesus' death on the cross was he gave his life, bearing all of our sins, taking the blame of all of our sins so that we can all be set free, find forgiveness. So let's pray, and then we're going to stand together, and we're going to share in the Lord's table today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you have given us the antidote to our sins There's only one, and that's the gift of your Son who took upon himself all of our sins so that we could be cured. We could be forgiven, and then you could come into our lives and begin to clean us up and set us free and lead us, Lord, so that we can become people after your own heart, not living in the irrationality of sin, but, Lord, finally coming to our senses and living in in, in your grace, and in your ability, Lord, to help us live lives, Lord, that reflect your character. So, Father, we pray today that you will touch our hearts, speak to our hearts, Lord, every one of us in this room. And, Lord, as we come to this table of communion today, may we come with a repentant spirit, Lord, asking you, asking you to search our hearts for any sin that we have left unresolved 
sin that we are just not dealing with. And Father, we give you praise for this as we offer our hearts to you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' great, his mighty, his glorious name. Amen.